Our scripture today comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Today is the third part in a three-part series that we've called Loving Your Neighbor in a Time of Conflict, and today we are going to look at racism and the gospel. So just a disclaimer as we get into this, this is not an exhaustive treatment of all of the racial issues in our world. Um, I know that I'm not going to be answering some of the questions that you would like me to answer. I know that I'm not going to deal with some of the things that you and I probably agree need to be dealt with. Um talking about things like the historical church's complicity in things like the transatlantic slave trade and residential schools and a whole number of other things. It's just not possible to deal with that in one sermon on one Sunday. So if you're listening to this and, and you're listening and engaging and you're thinking, well, what about this and what about this and what about this? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Pull out your uh, smartphone or your computer or whatever and send us an email to questions at christcitychurch.ca and I'm going to sit down with some people and we're going to do our best to answer those questions in one of our Here Be Dragons podcast episodes and um, would really like to be able to recommend some resources and do all that kind of thing. We'll do that in a podcast format. So that's your disclaimer as we get into this, as we talk about racism and the gospel. would love to answer your questions, just send them through. The way we're going to look at this today, three points, we're going to look at the sin of racism, the problem of hypocrisy, and the solution of the gospel. Here we're going to look at the sin of racism, the problem of hypocrisy, and we're going to look at the solution of the gospel. Now, if we start from the very beginning of humanity, we will be starting off on the right footing. And what I mean by that is this. Adam, created by God, Genesis 1 and 2, tells us the story. Adam was not white. Uh, Adam was not black. Adam was not Chinese. That's the right footing for us to start this conversation on racism in the gospel. The Bible does not start with the creation of a special race. It starts with the creation of humanity. And in Adam and Eve, their race is not identifiable. They are racially comprehensive, if I can say it that way. And what I mean when I say they are racially comprehensive is that together they become the mother and father of all peoples. One of the problems that we have as we read the Bible, which is an almost unavoidable problem, is that we come to the text with cultural pre-understanding. Daniel Hayes said, cultural pre-understanding is the tendency for us to interpret the biblical material through the lenses of our own personal cultural context. Not only do we fill in all the literary gaps in the biblical story with material from our culture, but we also tend to project much of our culture into the setting and into our understanding of the characters. Not all of this projection is bad, for it can often help us to relate better to the text. However, frequently, such 
cultural pre-understanding leads us to skew the text to fit our particular ethnocentric cultural outlook. So when we see that God created Adam and Eve and we go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in our Bible and we read the story, got our Bible in our hands, and what happens is we glance down as we're reading the passage of the creation of humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, and we see the color of our hands, and we think, well, Adam and Eve must be like me. We import our cultural pre-understanding into the text, and then we read it through that lens. This is how you end up with blonde-haired, blue-eyed European Jesus. This is how you end up with black African Jesus. This is how you end up with Latin American revolutionary Jesus. This is how you end up with multicultural, you know, ethnically ambiguous Canadian Jesus that's a huge fan of universal health care. This is how you end up with Texan Jesus who carries, you know, a sidearm pistol on his hip because he wants you to know that he lives in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Okay, before we have ever done that with Jesus, though, I just want us to notice that we do that with Adam. There's an appropriate Jewish teaching on this that says, um, why did God create only one human being? And the answer to the question is so that no one can say to a fellow human being, my father's better than yours. See, in Adam and Eve, we find our first parents universally. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And because we all have common parents in Adam and Eve, all races are then created in the image of God. This is actually a big deal. God created humanity in his image and after his likeness, which means all humans have inherent dignity and worth. Racism is profoundly at odds with the biblical story of God's creation of humanity. John Stott said both the dignity and the equality of human beings are traced in scripture to our creation. What that means for us then is that racism or the assumption that one's own race is superior or better than another is the denial that all people have been created in the image of God. Racism is a grievous sin that can fester in all people's hearts regardless of their own ethnicity or skin color. Timothy Keller said it is a sin to violate in thought, word, or deed the divine truth that all humans have equal dignity and worth as persons created in the image of God. So for us today as we consider racism in the gospel, the gospel, the question should not be, is racism bad? That's not the question we should be asking. We have to start there and say yes. But the question we should be asking is how do we respond to it? Not is it bad, but because it's bad, how do we respond to it? See, racism is a fundamental violation of the biblical understanding of personhood. It's a dehumanizing sin to say that someone is inferior or superior based on their race or ethnicity. And racism is a gospel issue. I know that might not sound controversial to most of you, but racism is a gospel issue. I'm going to show you why I believe that. Racism in thought, word, or deed is anti-gospel sin. So the question is, as followers of Jesus, what is the right way to deal with racism when it raises its ugly head either in our hearts 
or in the words and actions of others around us. Now, thankfully, the Bible speaks to this in powerful ways. And so that is the sin of racism. Secondly, let's look at the problem of hypocrisy. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, who's also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is a bit of an explosive story in the Bible. The book of Acts is basically split down the middle with the ministries of Peter and then Paul. And here is one of them rebuking the other for conduct that is not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul calls Peter a hypocrite. These are kind of the two founding apostolic leaders in the early church. Paul calls Peter a hypocrite. And he doesn't do it like in a text message after the meeting ends and the guy leaves and he's like sends a message to his buddy that says, hey, Peter's a real hypocrite. He calls him out in public to his face, and then he writes it down in a letter that we're still reading 2,000 years later. See, what happened here was Peter had been embracing a full inclusion of non-Jewish people into Jesus' church, purely by means of their faith in Jesus. But when some certain men from Jerusalem, certain men, the text says, when they showed up from Jerusalem, he feared them, and he changed the way that he was acting. So Paul says he goes and opposes him to his face. And what was Peter actually doing wrong? Well, he wouldn't eat with the Christians who weren't Jewish. Sounds a little bit silly to us, but it wasn't silly then, and I'm going to show you why it's not silly now. He separated himself from the non-Jewish people in the church. Peter acted out a segregation defined by racial lines. And he split the group of people from Jewish and non-Jewish. And he segregated the church. See, the gospel tears down all of the walls that would normally divide us in this world. Including all of the ethnic and racial and nationalistic walls. Peter knows that. Peter has actually experienced that reality himself. That the gospel transcends his Jewish people. Yet he still fell into the fear of this group of certain men, the so-called circumcision party. They wanted to keep their ethnic and racial purity intact by not defiling themselves through sharing a meal with non-Jewish Christians. Paul says it's hypocrisy. See, the gospel of Jesus tears down walls. Racism puts them right back up. Antioch is the place where this confrontation happened. And this city was the home to the first Gentile or non-Jewish church. It was a multicultural city. It was a multicultural church. And that church did not find their unity in skin color or ethnicity or shared common backgrounds and histories. They were a diverse church that found their unity in Jesus. 
Look at this from Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now just stop. The Hellenists are Greek-speaking non-Jewish people. Verse 20 says, There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking non-Jewish people, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, also known as Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's a phenomenal story of God's grace transcending the racial barriers and bounds and moving into new places, bringing unity among people who had never had unity before. So people arrive in Antioch, they're there to preach the good news of the gospel, and they preach the good news and a bunch of people believe. And the report then goes back to Jerusalem, the head of the church, that there are non-Jewish people who are believing the gospel in Antioch. And so the leaders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to go and check it out. Barnabas goes and he loves what's going on. He goes and finds his friend Paul and he says, come help disciple this new church full of people. You won't believe what's going on. Help disciple them in the depths and the riches of the gospel with me. And so they spend a whole year pouring into the church there. Paul and Barnabas making disciples of those who've come to Christ. It's a beautiful story. Evidently, at some point, Peter joins in and he's in. He likes this as well. He's loving it. He's relating to the new church there in Antioch with full freedom until certain men from Jerusalem arrive. When they show up, he's afraid. He changes his tune. And he starts to segregate the church down racial lines. Peter is working against what Paul has done for a year, investing the gospel in this community. Peter's working against it. It's not just a squabble about who sits with where at lunch. Paul's arguing that it's way bigger than that, and it actually has to do with the heart of the gospel itself. See, how does somebody come into relationship with God? How are we reconciled in relationship to God? Certain men from Jerusalem think that you need to become Jewish. You need to keep the Old Testament laws around food and Sabbath and circumcision. But the gospel that's been preached, that's been received, is a gospel that you are justified by faith alone. That you are saved by your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. So are you saved by your repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus? Again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or is salvation through Jesus plus works of the law, making sure that you don't you know, share a meal with those dirty non-Jewish people? That's the question. Scott McKnight says the sharing of a common meal was a visible and socially powerful symbol of the new slogan Paul was teaching his young churches. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But this symbol was publicly damaged by Peter's behavior. See, Paul seems to think that Peter's refusal to associate with the non-Jewish people wasn't just rude, wasn't just off-putting, wasn't just socially awkward. He seems to think it's wrong and theologically dangerous. So much so that he calls Peter a hypocrite and says that even Barnabas, who he had been working there with for a year, had spent a year teaching alongside him. Even Barnabas is influenced, led astray by the example that Peter has set because of these certain men from Jerusalem and his fear. Now, Paul's argument is not that it's rude or unkind. Paul's argument is that it's anti-gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Now, I want you to see, Paul's doing something so important here. There is a theological problem underneath the social issue of segregating the church along those racial lines. He's addressing the theological problem that is underpinning the social issue of racial segregation in the church. Peter says these certain men from Jerusalem, so Peter and these certain men from Jerusalem, they they don't believe that faith in Jesus is enough to save you. They think it's Jesus plus doing works of the law. We did a 27-week series in Galatians, and I said often in that series that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus doing works of the law is not the gospel. That is not how you enter into the Christian life. It's by faith that you enter into the Christian life. Daniel Hayes said the church's misunderstanding of justification led to a social stratification within the church, a stratification that was contrary to the unity in Christ that lay at the heart of the Christian faith. So I just want you to see that Paul is addressing a social problem by dealing with the theological issue underneath it, not just trying to mold the behavior of the church through some kind of new moralism where he forces them to do things they're uncomfortable doing. It's not what he's doing. The easiest thing for Paul in that scenario would have been to walk over to the group of certain men from Jerusalem and saying, stop being preferential to your own people and get over here and sit with us. Right? But, but mere behavior modification was not what Paul was after. He wants to get to the gospel root of the problem. He could have said, Peter, stop being racist. Come eat with the rest of your non-Jewish and brother, brothers and sisters in the faith like you were two weeks ago before these guys showed up. But he didn't. By addressing justification by faith here, Paul is addressing both the theological problem and the ensuing social problem that comes with it. G.W. Hansen said, if a church does not defend in practice the equality and unity of all in Christ, it implicitly communicates that justification is not by faith, but by race, social status, or some other standard. See, the totality of our unity as the church is founded upon our faith in the finished work of Jesus. We have been united in him. Not just as individuals united to him vertically, but we have been united to one another in him. 
We are the one people of God. And if we're not arguing for our unity in Christ, and in Christ alone as that foundation, in spite of all the different backgrounds we have, we're actually damaging the unity of the church. See, the theme of the unity of all believers in Christ is all over the Bible, all over the New Testament. It's all over the book of Galatians. Let me show you, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And see, when Paul says this, he doesn't do away with the fact that the Jews are Jewish and the Greeks are Greek. He doesn't do away with the fact that the slaves are slaves and the free are free and the male are male and the female are female. No, he isn't dissolving the ethnic, social, or gender differences. He is saying they are not barriers of entry to coming to Christ, and where Christ does not divide, neither should you. This was radical in the first century, and it's radical in the 21st century. And the question is, will we follow the pattern of the world that is divided along all of these segregated lines, or will we follow the pattern of the gospel that brings profound unity in the midst of beautiful diversity? What are we going to do? R.B. Hayes said, Paul holds forth the vision of a community of faith in which all are one in Christ. This is not merely a matter of an isolated slogan in Galatians 3.28. It is a central theme of the letter as a whole. Jews and Gentiles are no longer divided because Christ's death brought us together. Therefore, all manifestations of racial and ethnic divisiveness are betrayals of the truth of the gospel. Galatian is one of the Bible's most powerful witnesses against a cultural imperialism that excludes anyone from fellowship on the basis of criteria not rooted in the gospel. And that's why Peter's actions were hypocritical. They were not keeping in line with what he knew to be true. He was faking it and doing so in a cowardly way. So we've looked at the sin of racism. We've looked, secondly, at the problem of hypocrisy. But third, let's look at the solution of the gospel. Here's what we need to talk about as a church. Remember that I said the gospel tears down the walls that would normally divide us in this world, all the ethnic ethnic and racial and nationalistic walls, and that Peter knew this and that he had experienced this? The story that I want to tell you is out of Acts chapter 10 and 11. It's summarized in the beginning part of Acts chapter 11, and that's what I'm going to read for you. But, but what I just want you to notice before we look at it is that this comes before his conflict with Paul in Antioch. Okay? This was his experience of seeing Gentile people come to Christ through his ministry before he gets into this controversy. And I want you to notice that. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descended, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times 
and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, Christ City, the point of taking you to this passage is just to show you that, that Peter knew this already. He knew that life was being granted, knew eternal life was being granted to people other than the Jewish people, and that there was nothing common and unclean any longer for those who put their faith in Christ. See, Peter knew that God was welcoming the Gentiles by faith in Jesus, that he was filling them with the Holy Spirit, and that they were being welcomed into the church by faith. Yet in Antioch, later on, he falls into fear. In Antioch, later on, he falls back into an old pattern of racial, racial preference for his own people, his own customs, his own familiar way of life before Christ. His conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Christ City, this can happen to us too if we don't watch our hearts. Our racial unity as a community is not based on any secular model of agreement. It's not based on muting our distinctiveness with the different ethnic backgrounds and racial backgrounds that we have. Our racial unity is a gospel issue. Jesus' finished work on the cross removes both the barriers between God in that vertical sense of our union with Christ where we are reconciled in relationship to God, but it also removes the barriers between us as people where we are one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We've been brought together in the power of the gospel. Who are we to separate? Just like Paul with his friend Peter, we see that it is actually through the gospel that we deal with racism in the church. We're not walking over to somebody else's table and saying, stop being a racist. We're showing them that the error of their way on a social level comes from the underpinnings of a theological error. They're not keeping in step with the gospel of the unity we have in Christ. It's an appeal on the grounds of our very salvation itself that gives us power to repent and to make sure that our conduct is in step with the truth of the gospel. If you're going to celebrate communion with your house church, it's actually a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. The shared communion meal is for all who are in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've repented of sin, you've done your best to be reconciled with others, Celebrate the reality that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. Move through the liturgy that we provided you. Pray together as a group and celebrate the goodness of the gospel that we all 
despite our differences, are beautifully unified in Christ. Let me pray. Father, it is certainly with a heavy heart that we look at the affairs of the world and the way that things have gone, particularly in this last season. But it's been like this for a long time. We're just seeing evidence of it in a greater way. Father, I pray that we as your people would be the first ones to say that there have been times in the history of the church that we've missed it. But I also pray, Father, that you would remind us as your people of the good work that has been done for the last 2,000 years. How your people have worked for reconciliation. How your people have led the way in welcoming all people. We just pray, God, that, that you would root out the hypocrisy in our hearts, that we would live in the power of the gospel, and that we would just find our full satisfaction and joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.